Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He goes on to say, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up. In glory. I want to introduce you guys to an amazing work of art. (laughs) I did this. Um, Two months ago, Jordan uh, Adeline brought this good stuff happening down in Wonder Years, y'all. And uh, Jordan asked Adeline, Oh, who is this? Yoda? Do you mean Noah? Oh, yeah, Noah. The mystery of godliness isn't some biblical factoid. It's not some tough biblical mystery. Um, The mystery of godliness is the confession of God's people. Paul says, we confess. And we read these words again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And of course, this is about Jesus. Um, And if you look at the lines here in this early Christian creed, the first, he was manifested in the flesh, that's Christmas, that's the incarnation of God himself in human flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, that has to do with the resurrection of Christ. He was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. His resurrection was a vindication of his own words. Several times Jesus said that he would be delivered over uh, and crucified and on the third day rise again. And his resurrection, was, his words were vindicated by his resurrection. Seen by angels also probably refers to the resurrection of Jesus. And that he, the angels were the first there and, and they, they say, he's not here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, referring to the ascension of Christ. Um, and this early Christian creed hones in on the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus maybe in particular, which is probably what vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels refers to. Also, his life and ministry is, a vind- is vindicated by the Spirit, of course, with the signs and wonders he does and the power he preaches in. Um, in a lot of my sermon two weeks ago on women in the Bible, um, let me ask you all this question. Who was the first person to see Jesus raised from the dead? Yes, a woman, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene looked weeping into the empty tomb. They've, they've taken his body. They've desecrated his body, she's thinking. And she hears a voice behind her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thinks it's the gardener. Maybe, you know, between her teary eyes and Jesus' transformed body, uh, she doesn't recognize him. And she's probably thinking like, Maybe for, well, she asked, sir, if you've taken him, then tell me where you've put him and I'll, t- I'll take him. She's thinking maybe for some unfathomable reason this idiot has t- 
taken his body and relocated it. Um, Mary, that's all it took. Rabboni, teacher, she says. And Jesus commissions Mary to be the first witness of the resurrection and to tell his disciples of his ascension of the Father. The first word that Jesus spoke to a human in his resurrected body, recorded in scripture, is the word woman. It's beautiful. We, two weeks ago, looked at how Paul says it was the woman who became a transgressor. Um, and in that garden, the woman fell, and this garden, she mistakes him for the gardener, he says, woman. He says, woman, whom are you seeking? Women in this room, let that, room, let that ring through your souls. Whom are you seeking? First he says, woman, and then he says, Mary. And you two are on a first-name basis with Jesus. Great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You hear the mystery of godliness, and you think, I wonder what comes next. Well, what comes next is, it's all about Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What comes next is the life exhibited in Jesus Christ. His is the example of a life well lived. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of a life devoted to God. You will never find a better life lived. Search the world over. You will never find a better life lived than the life we see in Jesus Christ. Paul will say in chapter 1 that Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He calls Jesus the one, the one mediator between God and man who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is our common confession. It has been for 2,000 years now. Jesus is the model. Um, I, don't, I don't know how much to say. I'll, I'll, I've, I've been in a heavy place the last 24 hours as I've heard news of a, a person who, for more than half my life, I've hailed as a godly person, a very godly person, worth modeling and imitating. And there's allegations right now, and I've heard some very intense, serious allegations, and, um, and some less so, and I don't know what to believe at this point, and I didn't sleep very much last night because of this. And, um, and this morning, I've just been reminding myself of the truth of this passage, that regardless of how much is true of what's being alleged, this person was never my model of a godly life. The model of the mystery of godliness for us all, is Jesus Christ. And every other person is a sinner, myself included. Paul will tell Timothy to be an example in this passage. That doesn't mean people can't be examples, but Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the model. He goes on in chapter 4 to say this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, to teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. We read Genesis chapter 1. Every time he creates something, what does he say? It's good. And he says it's not good that man should be alone and gives Adam Eve. Who created marriage? 
God created marriage. How could you forbid this? Paul's saying. And nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This passage mentions false teachers whose consciences have been seared. Seared consciences. I mean, what a troubling image. The, the idea here is that the demonic activity has taken such root in their heart that it's as though a hot iron has been placed on their consciences, searing it so that they can't feel anything anymore. No longer able to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit from deceitful spirits. And guys, this is absolutely terrifying. Um, it's absolutely terrifying to come to a point where my conscience is no longer pricked, where I don't feel conviction over sin. I don't see the lies of the enemy that I'm believing. And instead, we are to be people responsive to the Holy Spirit, responsive to the spirit of truth, the spirit of holiness, the comforter, the one who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That's who we're to be. By the way, repentance is a sign that your conscience is functioning. If it's been a long time since you've repented of anything, you might see that as a good sign that all is well. I don't think that's a good sign. It might mean that your conscience isn't responsive to the Holy Spirit. Paul, um, Gordon Smith says this, In our intentional response to the Spirit's witness, we increasingly mature in faith, hope, and love through the mercy and grace of God. In the meantime, slowly but surely, the Spirit is at work, forming within us a Christian conscience, an inner awareness of God, of our world, of others, and of ourselves that is informed by the presence of a God of truth, beauty, and holiness. This is what we want. Amen? A Christian conscience, an, an inner awareness of God, our world of others and ourselves that's informed by the presence of a God of truth, beauty, and holiness. And there are two ways that Paul will encourage Timothy to participate in the, the, the Spirit's work of forming a Christian conscience in him and not having one that is seared. And it's through training, training in the truth and the words of the faith and training in godliness. That's where Paul will go next. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Uh, Scott, last week, put up this quote by Don Carson. I thought it was so good, I want to bring it back to us. Um, he writes, our hearers are inevitably drawn toward that about which we are most passionate. Every teacher knows that. My students are unlikely to learn all that I teach them. They are most likely to learn that about which I'm most excited. If the gospel is merely assumed, while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. Have nothing to do with the reverent silliness, Timothy. What if Timothy had gotten really into these Jewish genealogies that we read about, in these Jewish myths that we read about, or maybe pagan myths um, in 1 Timothy. Who, what if that, like, he'd gotten really into that, just delved in, and that's what ignited Timothy's passion rather than the gospel. Like, dude, you're a direct descendant of King David? Yeah, man, you're kind of a big deal. 
Like, that's awesome. What if that's what Timothy got super excited about? There are many ways for a church to get off track. And the periphery, for us, isn't Jewish genealogies or these myths, but the periphery takes new form and shape in every generation. What are we excited about? Paul goes on to say, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, some of us think of godliness, training for godliness, almost like training wheels. Um, And there was a time in my life when I might have thought about it this way, actually. Um, I might have thought of spiritual disciplines, um, training for godliness, as something you got to do in those early years of your Christian life. They help get you started. They get you on the bike. Um, But at some point, we outgrow spiritual disciplines like regular prayer and fasting and giving and gathering with people every Sunday morning to worship the God of the universe. And we come to a place where we start to say, you know, we get to experience this free-spirited Christian life where we just have this awareness of God and we can cast off all that annoying ritual. That training for godliness is like training wheels that at some point you graduate from. But the imagery that Paul uses here is of a Greek athlete. When he writes, train yourself for godliness, Paul uses the verb gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium. And the Greek word train or exercise, gymnazo, it literally means to strip naked. I don't know if this image is appropriate for church, but I'm, I decided to put it up anyway. Uh, the Greek athlete, I know, right? Ask for uh, forgiveness later. Um, the Greek athlete trained in the nude, competed in the nude, um, in part to show off, uh, but also just because it's a little bit more free, I guess. I don't know. Um, and this is what Paul is actually, this is the word Paul uses. Um, what if a top athlete felt that he or she had graduated from the need to train. Effectively, teaching the disciplines that made them great is training wheels. What if LeBron James said, I'm going to quit the gym, my, my uh, routines, my drills, um, I'm going to lounge around my house, emerging only from my next game. How long do you think he'd stay in the NBA? What if Serena Williams, at the top of her game, had decided, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to quit my, my workout regimen and training regimen completely, and just glide on my skills thus far. See, the image that Paul gives Timothy for godliness is of an athlete training to compete. Eugene Peterson, who is, uh, always plays fast and loose with the words of the Bible and the message, but often gets the idea, so I put it up here for you, he gets the concept usually pretty well. He says this, exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. Go to the gym, Timothy. More importantly, go to God's gym. You're thinking, man, I did not come to church for a workout pep talk. <laughs> this, is, this is Paul's analogy, not Gabriel's analogy, so you can take it up with him. You know, when it comes to working out, the real question is always value. Is it worth the effort? And 
Every person you know who works out and trains regularly, exercises regularly, they do it because they think it's worth the effort. Everyone you know who does it regularly and consistently, they believe it's worth the effort. Paul says bodily training is of some value. What about godliness? What about training for godliness? Is it worth the effort? Uh, Dallas Willard used to tell people, um, hey, if it doesn't work, don't do it. And then he'd dare them, but why don't you give it a try? To give the practice of silence and solitude a try. To give Sabbath keeping, give it a try. To give meditating on the words of God, washing your mind with that, a try. And of course, we come to learn that, you know what? My overstimulated brain addicted to screens could really use a little bit of silence and solitude. I, we, my family really could benefit from a day of rest. My soul would, would benefit from being washed with the words of eternal life and truth. It's beneficial. Godliness is of great value, holding promise for this life and the life to come, Paul will say. Quick thoughts on working out, because like this is the go-to verse for Christian workout junkies. <laughs> so here you go. If you're one, this is like your day in church. Um, you know, Paul does say that bodily training is of some value. Um, and... But, of course, he contrasts it with godliness, training for godliness, as being of more value. And for me, you know, I, my goal every day is to get up uh, before we get the kids off to school, uh, spend time before the Lord, beholding him, talking to him about the word, and sitting in the scriptures and praying. And then I work out. And if I don't get up in enough time to do both, then working out gets the axe. And I literally think of verses like this one. That's not me being legalistic. It's not me being like, God won't love me if I don't read my Bible and pray. It's just, no, no, I actually just believe the Bible, that one is actually more valuable than the other. Um, And I want to encourage you with that. Um, So the New Testament word often translated godliness has to do with piety, has to do with holy living, has to do with acts of religious devotion. Paul will say in chapter 5, um, of a widow who's in need and can't, no, can no longer take care of herself. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness, to show godliness to their household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Basically, Paul's saying, look, if there's no one who can take care of this person, then the church is going to step in. But if the family can step in, they should. It's very godly to take care of your family. Um, godliness isn't merely a matter of the heart. That's one of the things I want to point out here. Although the heart always matters. The heart always matters. But it's not merely a heart matter. Godliness is something external. Take that woman in. Care for her. It's godliness. The heart, I want to be clear, the heart always matters, though. Um, so what comes into your mind when you hear the word religious? or religion, or pious, or devout. Words, words are funny things. Uh, today, those are all dirty words, right? Those are the words we use to describe the Pharisees that Jesus has conflict with in the Gospels, or that legalistic person in your head right now. Like, those are the words we use to describe them. Um, and I say it's funny because 100 years ago, if someone described you as showing Christian piety um, or being religious or devout, that was a very kind thing to say about you. 
So it's funny how words can kind of change meaning over the years. Um, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. That's a common phrase that we hear, spoken around, almost like it's biblical. <laughs> almost like it's in the Bible somewhere. Um, religious devotion, or what the Bible calls godliness, it can be a matter of appearance only. It can And I'll talk about that pitfall in just a moment because it's important. But for now, I want to redeem the words that the Bible uses positively. Religion's a positive word. Being pious, being devout, being religious is a positive word in the Bible. Being godly. E. Stanley Jones will say this. Religion is the life of God in the soul. Religion means realization. If not, then religion soon means ritual, and that means death. So what does he mean here? He means this, that posturing and creating a rhythm of life by which you are seeking to realize God in your living, that's, that's, that's the goal. That's the life of God in the soul. Now, if, if you're not realizing God in these acts and this devotion and this pursuit, and it's just ritual, well, yeah, that is death, right? Now, religious devotion will always include some form of ritual, but if it's only ritual, then yes, that is death. And I think that's the clarification that needs to be made on this. Being godly or religiously devoted, it means the things you do reflect a conscious decision, a conscious effort to realize God in your living, to devote yourself to the things that hold great promise in this life and for the next life, as Paul will say. And by this, we're talking about things like devoting yourself to, to regular prayer and fasting and giving and committing to a small group of Christians to run with. This is what we're talking about. Religious devotion. Um, is, is regular prayer a religious activity? It is. Is service to others a religious activity? It is. Is coming to church every Sunday morning to worship the God of heaven and earth a religious activity? It is. Is preaching the gospel a religious activity? It is. Can these things be done for self-righteous reasons? They can. Can these things be done in such a way that we are doing it for the praise of man? Jesus certainly thought so, right? Uh, Jesus specifically mentioned godly practices of prayer, fasting, giving in his Sermon on the Mount. And he says that he, he rebukes people who do these spiritual disciplines to be seen by men. That's what Jesus says. They, in, in some of the most tragic words, I think, they have received their reward. That little hand clap, that little applause that you maybe got, that's all you're going to get. You've received your reward. But God will reward, Jesus says, the things done in secret. That's what we want. That's what you want, right? You want your acts of godliness to be rewarded. Jesus wants that for you too, brothers and sisters. We want godliness that holds promise for the present life. Is there a form of godliness that lacks promise in this life, that lacks reward, that denies the power? There is. And Paul will talk about that in his next letter to Timothy, where he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Doing all the right things, but no power. And you wonder, why? Well, we get a clue in the previous phrase. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. A whole lot is included uh, before this phrase, but that phrase, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, really sums up all that's said before. The age-old question is, what do you love? It really is. What do you love? What are you in love with? What excites you? What, what, what is the passion that drives you? What do you love? And I, I can attest to this verse. Practicing spiritual disciplines with a heart that is gripped with my own passions and loves my own passions, it robs my godliness of any power. Doing all the right things, addicted to my pleasures, but doing all the right things, that's powerless. But the inverse is also true. That doing spiritual disciplines as a lover of God, that's powerful. The Holy Spirit starts to change me. Jesus comes and he teaches me to do the things that his father did, as he did. And in that place, you begin to see more and more that your love for God is only very small. (laughs) That's okay. Great is his love for you. And there's time to become a better lover of God. All eternity, in fact. God's not expecting you to become Mother Teresa by tomorrow morning. God is really good at catching people, reaching out to him with small faith, little love, weak devotion, and breathing on their efforts. People like me. Recently, in the past few weeks, I've just noticed how I... I've been more in love with my own pleasure than God. And I've seen a lack of power in my acts of godliness. And I think that that is the journey of anyone who says, yes, I want to train myself for godliness. You more and more begin to see your own weaknesses. As the training begins, you see how incredibly weak you are. Your own boredom with godliness And that's totally normal. If you're sitting in this sermon and you're bored out of your mind, that's totally normal. There's at least 20 people who feel the same way. Hopefully not more than 20. My point is this, is that what matters in our pursuit of a godly life is not that it's exciting all the time. It's not that you see quick results. That's not it. It's often mundane. The transformation often happens over years as you're partnering with the Holy Spirit who is keeping your conscience alive, feeling, responsive to the Lord. But you believe that God is not a liar. Because if, if God says that training yourself for godliness holds promise in this life and the life to come, if God's word says that, then I believe it. And I'm going to live accordingly. Let the training begin. Godliness has to do with your way of life. And when people think about godliness, they often think of those quiet, hidden things that nobody knows about but them and Jesus. And that's not entirely true. Because although Jesus will say um, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not to do your works to be seen by men, in that same sermon he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And in this same letter, Paul will, will I think the point is this, is it, it's, it's not wrong for people to see our good works so long as we're not performing for them. Because Paul in this same passage is going to tell Timothy, be an example. Let no one despise you for your youth, 
but set the, the believer as an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. How is Timothy supposed to be an example in conduct if he's hiding all of his godliness from everyone all the time, right? And he goes on and says in verse 13 through 15, until I come, devote yourself to the public, that doesn't seem very private, public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, Timothy, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I was at the Billy Graham Library uh, last week with some pastor friends in South Carolina, and um, I'd love to say more about that, but for time's sake, I'll just say we went to his grave and his wife, Ruth Graham's uh, grave. What an amazing life, by the way, Billy Graham's life. Um, but I love what was written on Ruth Graham's tombstone. Uh, I don't know if you can see it. It says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. I love that. Let all people see your progress. It's okay. Thank you for your patience. John Mark Comer, uh, he planted a church in his early 20s. The church really grew. He left that church, planted another church. That one really grew as well. And um, those who kind of were with him through that whole time, you know, 10, 15, I think he's in his early 40s now, would say to him, John Mark, you have grown so much. He'd say, thanks. It's kind of a compassal, right? Um, like, yeah, like, we saw you when you were, you've really grown, man. Um, you've really, we've seen the progress. Um, and I think about me, I mean, gosh, God, I was, at 23, I planted a church. Oh, God, some of y'all knew me then. I mean, I still got a long way to go. I think I've grown a lot since then. And um, it's okay for people to see your progress. It's okay for people to see your progress lifelong. As a 23-year-old stumbling, trying to just please God and plant a church and in your 50s, 60s, 70s, I was talking to John and Gwen Carey about two months ago. I asked John, John, how can I pray for you? I just want to keep growing in my love for God. I never want to stop growing in my love for God, John said. I looked at him and I said, John, I hope I'm saying the exact same thing when I'm your age. Bless you, brother. So that all may see your progress. You may say, okay, well, all that public preaching stuff is fine for Timothy. He was a leader of a church. I'm not Timothy. You're right, but Paul would say to you, do not neglect the gift that is in you. Are there prophecies over your life? How has God called you out and affirmed it through his people? Practice your gifts, my friends. Practice them. Immerse yourself in them and let all people see your progress. It's okay to grow. It's also okay to fail. You will not be perfect. Um, I just want to keep growing. Falling, failing, making a mess of things, receiving the mercy of God carried along by the Holy Spirit when my willpower runs out, learning surrender, growing in godliness as a lover of God, which makes godliness powerful. You know, willpower can only get you so far. Trust in the Holy Spirit, not the human will. John Ortberg said this, the only thing the will can do that doesn't deplete it is surrender. 
I'm going to get up at this time. I'm going to give this much money away. I'm going to teach my kids all these things and never fail to. All that takes willpower. And you've only got so much of that. Your willpower is a limited resource. It is. It's a limited resource. The only act the will, the only act of the will that doesn't deplete it is surrender. Here I am, Lord. Once again, I place myself in your hands. John Arbor goes on to say, Thy will be done is an act of the will. You think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that moment of decision, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He surrenders. He's at the end of his rope, right? No energy left. He's sweating blood. That's the one thing he can do as an act of the will that doesn't deplete him. Lord, your will. Is it possible to preach a sermon on surrendering to the Holy Spirit and one on training yourself for godliness in the same sermon? I mean, it seems like training for godliness should be this week, surrendering the Holy Spirit should be next week, and never the two shall meet, right? It has to be. It has to be possible. We must train ourselves for godliness, and we must learn to say, Jesus, you were right when you said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit, for apart from me you can't do anything. I mean, it doesn't get much more blunt than that. You were right, Jesus. Apart from you, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. Great is the mystery of godliness demonstrated in the life of Jesus. As our model, and your life, Jesus, and your life, and I want to pattern my life after you. Every trained athlete has what might be called a rule of life. They have a routine that helps them produce the results that they're after. Maybe a particular diet, maybe an exercise regimen, maybe a sleep rhythm or pattern. Um, And when it comes to godliness, you need some kind of rule of life whether it be an informal rule of life or a more formal rule of life. Your list might be different than the next person. In fact, it will be different than the person on your right and on your left because you have a different life than they do. Presumably, you're not called to the public teaching and preaching and reading of Scripture. So, where do you begin? How can you set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity? There's different spiritual disciplines we could think of. This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch. For time's sake, I think I'll I'll move on. There's a a rule of life that I use. It's a really simple one. Um, And it has seven categories. If any of y'all want to email me, I'll print it out for you. It's a really simple, easy-to-use booklet. I also would love to meet with you um, if you'd like that. Um, But it, it just has seven categories to kind of look at your life. The first is abiding Abiding in the Lord. Um, Body, considering how uh, I can steward this temple that I have. My mind, what am I putting in? What am I feeding it? Does it have any rest? (laughs) Uh, Relationships, your your friends and family. Um, How can we be godly there? Rest, things like Sabbath and sleep and work and money. Work, of course, is how we spend a lot of our time and how we steward our money really matters. Gospel and hospitality. Um, these are, this is just a way of looking at it. And, and in this, I have some daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, and monthly rhythms. And you know, part of my daily rhythms are I want to play with my daughter every day. 
even if only for 15 minutes. I don't want a, a day to go by where I don't play with my daughter. I have daily um, rhythms with my wife. Um, we, have, we have weekly rhythms and things like that. And I think that this can be helpful for you, not legalistic, um, but helpful. Uh, Simon Chan says this about a rule of life. Having a rule of life does not mean that most of our time is taken up performing religious duties. I mean, presumably you've got jobs and lots of responsibilities that don't feel super religious, and that's perfectly normal. Rather, the rhythm that a good rule establishes helps us maintain our spiritual focus. That's the goal of a rule of life. And again, training yourself for godliness. Um, Let me close with this. In chapter 6, Paul continued to talk about godliness and say this, that the false teacher has constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, by this probably financial gain. Uh, they're, They're doing all the right things on the external, but their motivation is financial gain, maybe clout and notoriety as well. And he goes on to say, But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Train yourself for godliness. A translation, a literal translation of that would be, you know, strip down. Godliness. And I think for many of us in our pursuit of a godly life, it's going to mean probably a stripping away of things. It certainly has for me. Um, And Paul goes on to say, we brought nothing into this world and we we can't take anything out of this world. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Naked you came into this world and I think many, I'll just say me, I spend so much of my time concerned with money and possessions and the rest. Godliness with contentment, that is gain. That's valuable. If you think, by the way, that creating a rule of life means adding a ton of activities to your life, then you're actually wrong. It probably means stripping away. It probably means simplifying your life, creating more margin to live intentionally. One day, a spiritual seeker took a few days away from his very busy life to spend a few days in a monastery. And uh, the monk who was showing him to his cell said, I hope you have a blessed stay here with us. If you need anything, let us know, and we'll teach you how to live without it. (laughs) Godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm going to go and invite the worship team to come up. Um, and I also want to invite prayer ministry teams to come up. And if you're here today and you're saying, Lord, yes, Holy Spirit, yes, I want to train for godliness, um, then I want you to come and receive prayer. These prayer ministry teams would love to pray for you. Let's stand as we go back into worship. And again, if you would like prayer today, saying, yes, I want to train for godliness, come receive prayer. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We want to be lovers of God rather than lovers of pleasure and experience the power of godliness, Lord. And we thank you for your, the model of your life, Jesus. 
We bless you, we worship you, and we offer ourselves to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Come receive prayer. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.